Marini's Media. Hello and welcome to the Offside Rule WSL edition. Coming up on the show, Chelsea give Manchester City the blues. Last season's champions were too strong, but the main talking point was a controversial penalty. Yes, we'll have more on that later. Arsenal stay top after another emphatic win. This week, it was Brighton who found the Gunners' strike force too hot to handle. And Everton maintain their perfect start to the season. A 3-1 win over West Ham means it's four wins out of four now for the Toffees. Welcome along. I'm Kate Borsay. And I'm Lindsay Hooper. And this week we're joined by journalist and author of the Women's Football Yearbook, Chris Slegg. Hi Kate. Hi Lindsay. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. I've got a little question here for you, Chris, and it says, great to see you looking so well, but I can't see you. That's when I look my best, when you can't see me. So that's, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> You'll have to fill us in. How have you been doing? Because you had a major operation, didn't you, in the summer and women's football has been very much part of your recovery process. It has, actually. Yeah, the first live football I've seen um, since March, a couple of grassroots games close to where I live. Yeah, I had a heart surgery back in August. I'm now at a stage where the physios are saying, try and walk three miles a day. So um, what I've done is is turn that into a sponsored walk. I'm raising money for a, a small charity called Rebecca's Rainbow Heart Trust. And there's a Just Giving link at the uh, top of my Twitter profile. And so I'm, I'm taking in... As many uh, women's football clubs close to where I where I live as part of that walk, and I'm doing that to try and raise also awareness, not just money for the the heart charity, but awareness of the great voluntary work that goes in at these women's clubs. Because obviously, outside of the elite, it's still really very much a voluntary game. As part of that, I'm giving away 100% of any money I make from this year's edition of the Women's Football Yearbook, which can be ordered through legendspublishing.net, and every single penny that I make from any of those sales will go to. The NHS have helped me and so many of us this year and to women's grassroots football as well. But yeah, getting the chance to go and see, I was at um, AFC Wimbledon Ladies who play in Karsh Halton at the weekend. They were taking on Actonians in the WNL Division 1, which is Tier 4. Because obviously you can go and see grassroots football subject to local lockdowns. And I would recommend anyone, if you just want to go and see your local team, check out the women's teams in your area as well. Because I didn't even think about doing that before 2017. If I wanted to go and watch a local club... I just went and found the newest men's team. It hadn't occurred to me, obviously, there are women's teams playing too. And without that visibility, people don't even consider it. And that's why, you know, podcasts like this are so important. The exposure on TV now is so important. People need to become more aware of the, the great women's clubs that are on their doorstep, really. We're pleased that you're, you're doing so well, Chris, and also your generosity, especially in a year where lots of people are finding it hard. So especially as well, the profits from the Women's Football Yearbook, we really urge everyone to go and buy a copy of that. But also, uh, we wanted to just stress, you know, fans are allowed at Women's National League games, aren't they? Yes, exactly. You still can't go into WSL or the Championship, which are Tiers 1 and 2 in this country. But in the WNL, Tiers 3 and 4, and below that, subject to your local lockdown. So obviously it depends on where you're listening. Also check their Twitter feeds, check their websites, because in some instances you do have to book ahead, order your ticket online, because obviously everyone has to track and trace. And when you get there, you are going to have to either use the app on your phone to kind of check in the the COVID app, if you've got that on your phone, or you're going to have to leave your details. But I went to my local club, Beckenham Town, a couple of weeks ago. It just felt like a really safe place to be watching football. It was a great atmosphere. And then this weekend I went to AFC Wimbledon Ladies. And again, you know, it's, if, it was so long since not just that I'd watched football, that, but that I'd really done anything. And it was just great to be back there in a football environment. And, and for these clubs, I mean, it was three quid at Beckenham. It was three quid at AFC Wimbledon. Every single penny counts. Every single penny means 
so much to them, just buying an extra football, you know, extra bibs, extra cones for training. When we had all this this news at the weekend of the potential breakaway in in the Premier League and and, and kind of the the money that is talked about now at the top end of the the men's game in this country, there feels something quite wholesome about just going to your local clubs, whether that's men's or women's football, really. But the women's game has been ignored for for, for so long that I just want people to be aware that if you're thinking of, of going and watching your local club, check out the women's side as well. Well, let's turn our attention to the weekend's WSL action now, starting with the meeting of last season's top two. You're listening to the Offside Rule WSL edition from Muddy Dean's Media and The Athletic. Cuthbert there shoots, and again, again, that's a good block by Man City, and it's going to be a penalty this time. Ellen White seems furious at that decision. Mielder runs up, and Mielder hits it. Bottom right corner, that's an emphatic penalty. And it's Cuthbert for Chelsea. Ball play through, lovely ball for Kirby, and it's Kirby one-on-one with Roebuck. Roebuck comes out, and Kirby goes rounder, and slots it into the net. Chelsea three, Manchester City one. Well, an impressive win for reigning champions Chelsea, who condemned last season's runners-up Manchester City to a first defeat of the season. There may have been a bit of good fortune, though, about Chelsea's opener from the penalty spot, but the Blues were dominant in the second half with Frank Kirby. Well, back to her best. We've seen it over the last few games now, and uh, this game was no exception. She set up Chelsea's second and scored their third. 3-1 to Chelsea, the final score in this one. So the talking point in the game, Chris, was that controversial penalty awarded to Chelsea and actually when you watch the game back you can hear Ellen White saying it didn't touch me and it was real sort of school style football almost without taking anything away just this real insistence you hear really loudly it didn't touch me it didn't make any difference though did it in terms of her appeals no, and you know it must be absolutely galling as a player when you know that hasn't touched you. You've been booked for something you haven't done, and actually, you know, the replay showed that her teammate Demi Stokes hadn't really done anything wrong either. But I feel so sorry for the referee Rebecca Welsh. She's a top referee. I feel really sorry for referees nowadays. I mean, I'm not a fan of VAR. I, I really don't like it at all. But what happens now is that we all judge non-VAR referees as though they have. VAR with them. It's made the handball thing even tougher because they've got one look at that. And imagine the flip side. Imagine if it had hit the hand and she hadn't given it. So it, it was the wrong decision, but I have every sympathy with, with the referee. But I also have sympathy, of course, with with Ellen White as well for being booked for, for something that she didn't do wrong. Did that awarding of a pen, Linz, do you think affect City hugely? Did it upset their stride or was there no getting past Chelsea, do you think, in this one? Well, look... I think it's difficult to say whether Chelsea would have gone on to win this anyway, but I do think it affected the game massively. And and we can go into more detail. I know we're speaking to Michael Cox, who's great at analytics, but I do think being the first goal of the game, it changes the flow and it changes the system um, from that point onwards. Because what you'll notice is that Manchester City, overall in this match, they edged possession. They had 57%. And that's because once Chelsea had got this penalty, they then sat back and they allowed Manchester City then to really have a lot of the possession to try and break them down so that they could then have counter-attacking football, which 
when it's level in the game, they wouldn't have been able to do so much because they'd have been going in search of that first opening goal. So I think it did affect things. I really do. Now, whether it would have affected the result or not, I still think Chelsea had a lot of quality. And I think Emma Hayes had said post-match that across the pitch, she thought the one-on-one battles her players won. And I, I, I tend to agree with her on that. So I think, it, you know, a, a Across the 90 minutes, Chelsea may have still come out on top. I do think this was a game-changing moment, though. And I I do think it meant that playing counter-attacking football really played into Chelsea's um, hands from that moment on. It was a turning point. It was a huge decision. Yeah, Emma Hayes after the game saying she thought they were ruthless, dominant throughout, aggressive, made it difficult for them to play comfortable winners was her assessment on that. And it did look... Just a, a just a little bit lost at times from Gareth Taylor's team. I, I, I don't ever feel like they got fully into their flow sometimes. We are going to sort of pick up on the ins and outs of this with the brilliant Michael Cox in a short while. But Chris, just give us your assessment here. What worked for Chelsea? What perhaps didn't work for Man City? I just feel that Man City, they're kind of in a bit of a transitional spell, aren't they, under under a new manager, Gareth Taylor. I know he's familiar to the club and familiar to the setup there, but trying trying things in a slightly different way. I just feel like they have to work harder to create things than, than Chelsea have to. They're a, they're almost a bit more organised. And as you say, a huge incident to happen, you know, approaching half-time for Chelsea to, to go ahead in such a controversial fashion because I think the longer it had been goalless, uh, the more of a chance Man City would have had to kind of stamp their authority on that game. And, and it did play a major fact that that decision, but I, I would agree kind of with Emma Hayes' assessment. I do think Chelsea, just looking at their squad now, I, I, I put them just a bit ahead of Man City. I, I mean, you just you just see the players on the bench for Chelsea at the weekend. You know, Sophie Ingle, Guro Wrighton, who they had incredible seasons last year. Beth England, PFA Player of the Year yeah. on the bench. And I just think Chelsea have almost moved into that bracket. I mean, I, w- I would make them personally, I know with only four games in, and I could be eating my words at the end of the seasons, but I would say they're, they're heavy favourites. I would put them a notch above from what we've seen so far, Arsenal and Manchester City. And I think once City were behind, Chelsea were ruthless, as Emma Hayes has said. They just dominated every area, every part of the pitch. And you, and you couldn't really see City getting back into it. Did you expect a bit more from Mewis from, from City? I know that she had that that one run and she hit the post. And, and I think that was the one little glimpse of quality that we saw from her that showed that she could take on that Chelsea team. She could actually slice open that midfield and produce a chance, but she didn't do it often enough. And I, I wondered whether that was a, a little bit disappointing from, from that point of view. Yeah, but and also though you've got to look at how how Chelsea prevented her doing that, and that, that again is they are such a strong unit, so strong in midfield, such a strong backline there with Miel, the Bright, Eriksson, and Anderson. They, you know, this is what impresses me so much about it. You know, this is one of their biggest games of the season, Manchester City, and they're able to leave Chelsea are able to leave that amount of talent on the on the bench and take a stranglehold on the match and win it comprehensively. I mean, it's, it just sends out such an ominous sign, I think, to City and 
And to Arsenal. Yeah. City did get a penalty, didn't they, um, when they were 2-0 down? And I was glad to see the old Chloe Kelly pony leg back <laughs> yeah. again, as I've, uh, as I've christened it. But just not enough from them in general. Well, I'm really interested to look at the finite analysis of this game. And there's really only one man to speak to on this level. Uh, covering the match for the Athletic, Michael Cox, also known as Zonal Marking, of course. But really interesting, this game, to go through with Michael. Michael, welcome to the Offside Rule. Really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for having me on. I feel like you've got shapes in front of you, Michael. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm on a, on a, on a very a geeky website called fbref.com, which has just more statistics about men's and women's football than anything you could find elsewhere on the internet. So yeah, you're not too far away from that. Okay. You were at Chelsea at the weekend, uh, Michael, and I know obviously you were looking at the game, but 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 also particularly about some of the Scottish players to feature. Just give us your take on the game, first of all. And we're really interested to sort of hear what you think about the way Chelsea are lining up for games and the way City are and what the disparities are between the two sides, really. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting game. I think Chelsea, probably the better side for the majority, deserved winners. I would say. I mean, I think it's interesting because, you know, there was so much talk at the start of the season about how um, how they were going to fit in, you know, Harder and Kerr and Bethany England, who was left out for this one. And, uh, you know, there's some players who kind of get omitted from that discussion. And I think one of them was Erin Cuthbert, who I thought was the best player here. I mean, her and Fran Kirby. I know Kirby got a lot of the attention because obviously after what she's been through over the last year or so, it's, it's great to see her back starring and, and on the score sheet here. But I mean, Aaron Cuthbert was up against Lucy Bronze and I mean, I don't think I've ever seen Lucy Bronze have such a difficult game just in both sides of it. Cuthbert was, I think, more tenacious and, and came out of the 50-50 tackles very well, but also was offering a, a counter-attacking threat in behind her and also assisted, well, kind of created two goals because she won the penalty with with the shot uh, that hit Demi Stokes's hand. I thought that was quite a harsh handball, but anyway. And then the ball in behind for the third goal, rounded off by Kirby. I mean, I just thought she was brilliant. And like I say, you know, with so many new arrivals from abroad and also so much focus on, you know, the Lionesses, I think, are very well known amongst even casual football fans. But I thought some of the, you know, some of the Scottish players get overlooked. And, And Sophie Ingle as well, obviously Welsh international, who came on here. I think they're the kind of players that, don't get that much attention but if they're starring in a game between first and second from last year clearly they're as good as anyone in the league much has been made of, about Chelsea's high press Michael but if you were going to try and watch this for this match you only had about 40 or so minutes to to try and dissect that because the the penalty decision did change things because then they were able to sit on that goal and and play more counter-attacking football but from what you observed of them doing this high press how did you think that panned out yeah I thought they did it very well yeah it was really noticeable I mean I think in in Magda Eriksson they've got I mean you can tell of course because there's no fans in the ground but She's just so vocal as a leader. I think she, you know, her combination with Millie Bright works really well because I think Bright is very good technically, but sometimes positionally, I think she she kind of needs to be told where to be. And I think Ericsson is just very forthcoming with instructions. And yeah, I mean, they just compressed the play really well. I think they're, you know, obviously the press started from high up, but maybe the most noticeable thing for me was how high their defensive line was. They really pushed it up. Yeah, I, I just thought it was a really good all-round display from Chelsea, actually, from back to front. I thought Melanie Leopold's had a really good game in the centre midfield. G, we know, obviously pulls the strings as well as anyone in the league. And just everything about them really just looked more 
more cohesive than City. Obviously, it's early days in terms of how long their respective managers have been there. But yeah, with and without the ball, I thought Chelsea were much more impressive. Yeah, and they were well-structured, as you said, really good positioning. In fact, we know how much Emma Hayes likes her tactics, likes to look at the ins and outs, look at the data before a game. And I think it's it's safe to say, Linz, Emma would have really enjoyed watching that game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think looking at City, though, Michael... One of the things that really stood out to me was was the lack of shots. So I think City had nine compared to Chelsea having 19. And and then of the ones that they did have, only half of the amount of what Chelsea had were on target. Did you identify that as an area that that is lacking? Yeah, I think that's fair. They weren't really connecting midfield and attack that well. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Caroline Weir. I think she was probably the brightest player. But aside from that shot where she hit the post, I didn't really see much of Sam Mewis was surprised to see Rose Lavelle come in pretty much up front from what I saw. I mean, I haven't seen her play there before, so that was a surprise. It, it just felt to me like they didn't quite match the passes and the runs. I was watching Chloe Kelly quite closely because obviously she's, she's had such a, a good start to the campaign, but just the runs weren't quite right for the for the passes that were being played. And yeah, I, I just thought they looked, like you say, a little bit lacking in in attacking spark, really. And I do wonder, I mean, it's such a a strong squad now. You do wonder whether they'll be just tempted to just keep on meddling with the sides. You know, I think that's been one of the most interesting things of the summer recruitment is so much has been for the top sides. And now, I mean, you look at the benches for for the game on Sunday and you almost feel like it's a waste. You almost feel like those players should be playing week in, week out somewhere else. And I mean, just the, the depth in the City bench was was quite staggering to me. So it'll be interesting to see what changes they make ahead of the next game. Just before you go, Michael, I just wanted to get your final thoughts, if I could, on this project big picture that everyone's talking about this week, um, because there are implications for the women's game. Uh, Fee Thomas has written in The Telegraph about a £51 million per season windfall, if you like, that women's football could inherit from from this new design of the game, if, if this is actually something that goes forward and she broke it down into sort of 17 million pound tiers I think 17 million to WSL and championship 17 million for the FA Cup I just wondered what your thoughts are for how that could have an impact on the game going forward to me it seems like there are some good parts of this plan I mean I think it's interesting how some you know representatives from the EFL seem very keen on it Uh, my my problem would be this this idea that basically all the power would be held by the big six and three clubs who, you know, it just seems a slightly odd criteria for me. They're the ones who've been in the Premier League the longest at the moment would basically be the gate holders of everything about football from the Premier League to the EFL to the women's game. That strikes me as very odd and, and I don't really understand how that would be approved by by the rest of the uh, the footballing pyramid and the women's side of the game. Um, but certainly in terms of the redistribution of money, I mean, it... That strikes me as as a positive for the women's game going forward, yeah. Yeah. There are also plans to establish a new women's league as well. So this this is grouped into this cash, which would be independent of both the FA and the Premier League. So uh, another talking point there, but um, I think one to look into when we know a little bit more about whether this has actually got legs or not. Well, an interesting chat. You'll have to come back and speak to us again soon, Michael. Yeah, well, I'm just down the road from Kings Meadow, so Chelsea home games are very convenient for me. So, yeah, if you ever need any Chelsea chat, I'm, uh, I'm always happy to come on. 
This news just in, listeners. The Athletic is extending its £1 a month offer for all new subscribers, meaning you can get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a brand new breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts for just a quid. This deal won't last forever, though, so don't miss out. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash offside. Well, let's move on with our next match from the WSL. Brighton against Arsenal, and it was quite a drubbing for Brighton in this one. Leaders Arsenal made it four wins out of four with another ruthless display, beating Hope Pals Brighton and Hove Albion 5-0 at the People's Pension Stadium. Uh, Dutch striker Vivian Miedemar scored twice to move level with Nikita Paris as the all-time leading WSL goalscorer. She's now got 49 goals. So two more for Miedemar in this one. But the goal of the game came from right-back Lotta Wubin Moore. Um, Miedemar the provider for that one uh, they're strung all over the pitch although when you break this match down was it a 5-0 ruthless display as we're, as we're pitching it as? Yeah I mean I, I think so because I think with Arsenal the, the thing that they obviously do so well is take their chances don't they so they're, they're, they're not a team that has to create oodles and oodles of chances to put their goals away because when you've got Viviana Miedemar up there who obviously you know winning golden boot after golden boot and putting away the chances whenever she, they come along for her, that they're, they're a team that just kind of steamrollers those outside of the big three in the league. So uh, to already have a goal difference of what is it plus twenty after these these first four games just shows that pretty much every chance they create turns into either making the goalkeeper work or turns into a goal. I mean Brighton they started for that just first ten minutes. It's only ten minutes, isn't it? But they they started quite brightly. They had uh, Denise O'Sullivan had a had a chance. She looks like a good signing for them. I think they'd have been buoyed by that goalless draw with Man City a, a couple of weeks back. But I, I think once Arsenal hit their stride outside of those those games against Man City or Arsenal, or, or we're going to see Everton and Man United obviously this season give Arsenal a good game. But outside of those, once Arsenal go ahead, it's 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 a long way back for their opponents, isn't it? Yeah, and Joe Montemuro had identified the need to drag out Brighton's middle line. And as you say, Denise O'Sullivan, part of that with an early chance. Inessa Kagman, also part of that middle line to an early scare from her for Arsenal. So he, he, he had identified what he needed to do. And I guess that's the danger. If you're Hope Pal and you've got a very structured side, um, you are going to have to try and spring a surprise on some of these top teams. You can't always rely on structure and organisation. It, it, it does pay dividends for them. She was manager of the month for September. But once they've got that drilled, they do need to think about, you know, trying to play some differences as well, trying to not always be that organised, if you see what I mean, or organised in different ways. Well, the reason I asked you both that question is, does it flatter Arsenal a little bit, this scoreline, is because I broke it down. I I watched this game in full on FA Player, actually, and... I think it could have easily been Arsenal 2, Brighton 0. Now, that would have still been a, a win. But in terms of the goal difference and making Arsenal look quite as ruthless as this scoreline did, I think it's flattering. I, I think actually at fault here and, you know, in the women's game, we, we've got to provide analysis and we've also got to provide critique. And I'm afraid this was not an afternoon for Brighton goalkeeper Megan Walsh. I think she was at fault for three of the five goals um, where she could have done better. Miedemar's first goal, um, she should, really, really should have done better at the, the near post for that one. Van der Donks, 
some goalkeepers would say, I'm sure, who who are experts in that area, that it was a tough strike from Van der Donk. And I think it was. But she got a hand to it. And I think a, a tougher hand, she could have maybe stopped that going in. And I think the fifth goal, again, her positioning was all off. Is she coming out for it to stop, stop that goal or is she not? And... I think that comes from the defence as well. Analytically, I tried to watch this as well. Brighton kept sitting deeper and deeper. And one thing that I watched and observed from Hope Howell and the setup that they had in the opening couple of rounds of games is they were defending really, really well and they got quite a disciplined high line. In this match, they kept drifting towards their own goal line so often and it was just inviting Arsenal. So yes, they were clinical and yes, they punished them. But I think Brighton have to take a lot of responsibility for this 5-0 scoreline. Yeah, certainly nothing that they could have done. Well, of course, there's always something that you can do. But the fourth goal from Lotte Wuben Moy, I mean, just, you know... You couldn't do anything about that and you can't really do anything. There isn't much you can expect them to do from the BT header either when it comes in from a corner yeah. that those things happen but I think there was more that that Hope Powell can be demanding mm. from her, her players. Well she'll be working on that um, for sure and she was very matter of fact again after the end of the game um, Viv Miedemar's assist for that Lotta Wuben Moy goal by the way I wow, mean just yeah. it was just beautiful wasn't it and that is Viv Miedemar working you know moving adjusting her body the vision the strength of that cross was awesome um, let's pick up on Daniela van der Donk with you Chris if that's okay after the game Arsenal tweeted an image of her heat map with the words 71% of the earth is covered by water the rest is covered by Daniela van der Donk she, of course, scored the second goal for Arsenal. How important is she to the team? Because I don't feel like we've been talking about her as much recently. Yeah, she's so important, isn't she? A lot of her work just goes unnoticed, I think. And I think that's why Arsenal put that tweet out. Joe Montemuro said afterwards how disrupted her start to the season has been because of a, an injury problem. I think he said they, you know, they weren't quite sure about playing her in that Champions League match that was kind of left over from from last season and then that affected her she was restricted to substitute appearances in in the first couple of league games and then she started a couple of weeks back and this was her second start and a a first goal of the season I I think she is such an important player been around the club for so long knows exactly how everything works there always plays with a smile on her face as well great to see her getting amongst the goals and just going back to back to the earlier point I, I thought the same with the first medium our goal regarding Megan Walsh but when I saw the replay from behind the goal did you see how much it just curled at the last minute just curled away from from Megan Walsh I mean I, I think any goalkeeper would be disappointed at, at letting that in at, at her near post but it was amazing the um the curl that Miedemar got on that and it, it just whips away from Megan Walsh right at the very last minute. So I, I almost say uh, Walsh may be only half to blame for that one, but I, I take your point definitely on the, on a, a, another couple of those goals. Focusing back towards the top of the table then and on to Everton West Ham next and Everton's fantastic start to the season continues. Four wins out of four for them so far in the league. That's their best WSL winning streak since 2011. Sub Lucy Graham was their star of the show on Sunday. She came off the bench to score twice to see off West Ham 3-1. Well, they were tested Everton by West Ham in this game, but they found a way to win. They had a little blip midweek in the Continental Cup. But I think this is a sign of a good side isn't it Chris? Yeah and I think this is what excites all of us isn't it all of us who follow the WSL this season the emergence of Everton to have, to have won their first four games for the first time to win their opening four to only be behind Arsenal 
on goal difference and we're just wondering now, is this going to be a more competitive league? It certainly it looks to me like they are the real deal. They could really have a, a chance of muscling in on, on perhaps even a top three if everything goes well. I, I think the title's well beyond them, but you know, I, I, I think they could finish in the, in the top three on the basis of what we've seen so far. And Lucy Graham, the, the, the first of her two goals, sensational strike right in the top corner. Uh, I don't think you could expect the goalkeeper to get there. You know, she she's loves been a the long-range shot. Yeah, quality. She's got such quality from distance, and uh, you know she's been a favourite of of Willie Kirk. She's been at him with at Hibs at Bristol City, uh, joined Everton last last summer, and and really hitting her stride in this her second season on Merseyside. So yeah, another great result for them. I I really think they're gonna gonna build on that throughout the season. This is another thing for us to talk about, Kate, actually, that every time we speak about an Everton performance, we've we've talked about Govan and how quality she is. We had Izzy Christensen on the show last week and she's had lots of plaudits um, for her performances. But there's different mm. players that are getting the headlines. You know, this time it was Lucy Graham. Yeah, and well, and, you know, also a beautifully worked goal and assist from Claire Emsley to Nicolene Sorensen. And Sorensen's a new signing for Everton. Everton have this wonderful stock of players now. And that was a lovely first goal. Govan twice almost doubled the lead. And West Ham struggled. They struggled to retain possession. They couldn't get Rachel Daly or Kenza Daly into the game, really. They did level through Daly and they did settle a bit after that Adriana Leon coming close but they just they just then get unsettled so they they you know might have good periods but you cannot survive in this league with just you know periods of being settled you need to take the game by the scruff of the neck and that's not what they're doing Matt Beard again at the end of the game just saying it wasn't good enough they didn't work their chances they didn't create well enough and it feels like West Ham, they are out of the habit of winning. And that's going to be, you know, especially as the next few games go on, that's going to be such a tough nut to crack. And you just, you want something to change there, don't you, Chris? You sort of want to, you want something to instigate some sort of fighting form. You do. You you worry a bit for Matt Beard. A lovely guy, got a great, great manager, deals with the media so well, but... I don't know if you've watched the 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 iPlayer documentary squad goals from from last season, and um, which is great. I, I'd recommend anyone watch it. But you know, he he looked to beat a man at a point, didn't he? Last yeah. season after the eight one to Chelsea, it felt like he was teetering on the brink. The way things have started this season, I mean, he's he's been bullish in his post match comments. He's been bullish on Twitter since the game, but you just begin to fear a bit about how he's going to turn things around there. I, I think the thing that you get from watching that series is that there were consistency issues and then you watch this season and there are consistency issues and there's consistency issues within 90 minutes, not just within a season, it's within within the actual game. But it's also because they've got so many players coming and going. He doesn't have a settled side. He hasn't had a settled side. And you've got that again this season. He doesn't have a reliable enough core there to build on. There's there just there's just too many players coming in and out, I think. They're on one point from their first first four games. So it, look, it does, you know, something something needs to change there. Um, I haven't got all the answers. <laughs> I don't know whether anyone has. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. The thing that really concerned me watching that documentary, Chris, was the blaming 
game. You saw it not just on one occasion, quite a few different occasions where there was finger pointing and, you know, you were out of place and you weren't doing this. And and I'm hoping that's been eradicated now because that seems like a poison that can just go through a squad, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's something that really stood out to me in that documentary as well. And obviously, we've got to be aware of how things are, you know, you never see the full picture of something in a, in a reality TV sort of thing. A lot comes down to the editing, but it it, it didn't look like a happy camp at times, did it? And it, it didn't feel like there's the team unity there. There's, there's talented individuals. You know, Rachel Daly's there now. You've got Jilly Flatty, so much experience, such a good captain. Ken Zadali as well is a great player. Ken Zadali, great. You know, Grace Fisk has been doing great things over the last um, 12 months as an individual talent who's progressing. But it, it just it just feels like as a team they're not functioning. And obviously that... Matt Beard would would admit, as a manager, he, it's down to him to make it to make it flow, and we've not seen any evidence at the start of this season that that he's getting there yet. So, um, you know, I really hope for him that that, that things can turn round over the next few weeks. Okay, all right. Let's move on to our next one. Manchester United uh, will briefly at the top of the WSL after winning at Spurs on Saturday. Millie Turner's header from Tobin Heath's corner secured the three points for the side. United had eighteen shots in the game to Spurs's four, and really it was only the heroics of Tottenham keeper Becky Spencer that kept the home side in it. One um, nil to Manchester United. The final score with this one. Having looked at the game, Chris. It by no means was all in Manchester United's favour. Tottenham were good. And I actually think Casey Stoney would have been relieved at the end of the game to have secured her win. Yeah, huge result for them. Two teams that came up to the WSL at the at the same time. You know, two men's clubs who have started to take their women's teams more seriously. Man U certainly a, a level above Tottenham. We've known that throughout last season. They 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 invest more. They've got a stronger squad there. Um, but positive signs for Tottenham to have pushed them so hard. I mean, a really good performance from the goalkeeper, obviously, uh, Becky Spencer, who's got so much experience. She was a, had to play second fiddle at Arsenal for, for so long throughout her career. And, you know, she's she's just pushing 30 now, I think. And um, that experience is, is, is coming to the fore because she put in a really good performance. And Ashley Neville playing really well at, at right back. You know, they, they pushed United close, but eventually the... The extra quality there of having, you know, being able to call on on, on press and Heath starting together for the first Tobin time. Tobin Heath, particularly. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, Spurs will be pleased with that. Although it's a loss, they'll be pleased to come back from that 4-0 loss to Manchester City with that result. I think it's always easy, isn't it, for um, a team's heads, heads to drop going into the next game. And I know Juan Amaros was was really gutted to not come away with a draw. We won't talk too much about Alex Morgan. Needless to say, the reason why we're not talking about her much is because she's not playing. And uh, this is a podcast that likes to talk about the on-the-field action. Um, so we won't mention Alex Morgan. Well, maybe we should make a pact, both of you, not to mention Alex Morgan's name until she actually sets foot on the pitch and then Spurs will have to play her. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Offside Rule WSL edition, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Well, the upset of the weekend came at Reading, where Birmingham picked up their first win of the season thanks to Claudia Walker's second half goal. Reading had 22 shots in the game to Birmingham's five, but couldn't find a way past Hannah Hampton in the Birmingham goal. Lindsay, you watched this one, um, I know, and, you know, again, really encouraging stuff from Birmingham and quite the upset really when you consider the heritage of Reading. 
Yeah, and it really was a result that came against the run of play. I think that's worth pointing out here. Reading were absolutely dominant, as you pointed out, with the the shots, um, 22 to 5. But when Birmingham got their chance... They took it and that was the difference. They were clinical. And Walker, who I think, you know, when you look back on last season, her confidence must have been really, really low coming into this campaign because she was the one that stepped in to fill Ellen White's place when she went to Manchester City and then she didn't score at all last season. And I think Carla Ward now is saying, you know, she's put a big arm around her because she's really having to look to to Claudia Walker now for goals. And these are three huge points for Birmingham. It must also be said about Hannah Hampton, given that I've, I've given a bit of dishing out to goalkeepers earlier on, that she was fantastic. Fantastic. And if you were talking about the equivalent FPL points in um, in the women's game, you know, she would be earning you serious points in this match. Um, she had a cracker. Yeah, I think I think she's definitely WSL goalkeeper of the week, closely followed by Becky Spencer. A quick word on Reading, though, from you, Chris. I just just had huge problems taking their chances. Yeah, I mean, uh, Reading, another team that almost have to work so hard for for everything and I you know I, I wouldn't think that Kelly Chambers is going to be overly concerned you know they'd had that they'd recovered haven't they from that that 6-1 defeat to Arsenal on the opening day of the season uh, back-to-back wins came into this one that you would have expected them to win they're at home to Birmingham you know Reading have got um, greater form over the last couple of seasons and I, I think it's a bit, bit of a setback but I don't think Kelly Chambers from what she's seen in these opening four games won't be won't be too alarmed um, there were chances there for them as you say Anna Hampton again playing ever so well as she did throughout last season. She got that call up to the um, she believes um, squad, didn't she? Not the not the, the formal squad, but she went out with the team to be a part of the training camp out in in in, in the states, um, putting another great display for for Birmingham. So yeah, real setback for Reading, but I, I think they're going to be they're going to be okay throughout this season. They'll they'll finish you know fifth, sixth, or seventh again. I would have thought. Famous last words from Chris Lag there. <laughs> I think you're probably right. One more fixture from the weekend to bring you, but it didn't happen on Sunday. The bottom two, Bristol City and Aston Villa, that match was called off after a Villa player tested positive for coronavirus and a number of players were having to self-isolate. Villa's match against Chelsea next weekend has now also been postponed and that wraps up the results. Let's talk international football for a moment because as we record this, England boss Phil Neville is preparing to announce his latest squad for the October training camp and we will get a lowdown from him on that shortly because I'm going to jump onto that press conference. Um, But Chris, can I just start by asking you about the October training camp? We saw a behind-the-closed-doors match with England A and England B going up against each other last time out. Um, What do you think about this at the moment? Because we're, we're guaranteed a place for the Euros because we're hosts. Competitively, where are England at, do you think? And and are more friendlies needed, more competitive matches needed? Obviously, with the COVID situation, it's just been such a, a stop-start thing, hasn't it? Even even more so in, in women's football on the international front because we've seen the men playing friendlies and Nations League matches but it, it everything just feels so disjointed now. We know that Phil Neville's going. We don't know who's in charge for the Olympics still. We've we've pulled out of the the She Believes Cup partly because of the fears over COVID. And I, I just feel that everything, if it wasn't disjointed enough, because I know there was a lot of discontent, a lot of people didn't feel like the team was making the necessary 
uh, progress since the World Cup semi-finals, and you know, it, it felt like a lot of the women's football media and and some of the support had already lost faith with Phil Neville. It, it, none of this has helped at all, and I, I just wonder the outlook of the players right now. You know, playing for a for a manager that we know is leaving, and it, it's just a yeah, just a, all feels like a bit of a mess. I know that you know you can't really blame the FA as such and the Lionesses for for what's going on in the world with with COVID, but no, none of it helps. And um, so after after this, we've got the the Norway game at the start of December. That's coming at a time of the season when I'm sure the WSL managers aren't really going to be pleased to see that friendly plonked in the middle of a, a crowded schedule already. And then we don't know really what lies ahead fixture wise next year so it's just a, a clunky clumsy disjointed kind of outlook well Linz, you've been looking at this new lionesses squad give us the headlines well most notably i think are the players that are missing so there's no tony duggan in this squad or jodie taylor and phil was asked about both of those in the press conference and asked whether that's maybe the last that we've seen of jodie taylor he said not necessarily um also jordan Nobbs is missing through injury so that's a big loss of course for england going into this germany friendly um but in terms of youngsters getting a second recall and impressing phil neville during that last training camp uh, millie turner esme moore Morgan, Neve Charles and Ella Toon all get another call-up. So that's really good for them. And Izzy Christensen is back in the England camp too. And let's talk goalkeepers as well, Kate, because we've mentioned this earlier on in the podcast about Hannah Hampton and how well she's been doing for Birmingham. Well, Phil's taken notice of that. She's in the camp, as is Sandy McIver from Everton, who's had a great start to the season as well. He's got four goalkeepers to choose from and he was asked about that and whether he's decided yet who his number one is. I think I think I've got a nice problem. Probably two of the young keepers I took to, she believes Sandy and Hannah were were probably for experience. I think Sandy's performances this season with playing consistently for Everton, I think have been outstanding. Hannah the same, Ellie Roebuck the same. Carly has not had much football, but I think she's she's always someone that I've relied heavily on for experience. She's the senior keeper in that group who will set the standard uh, on and off the pitch for these keepers. So I've got a really nice problem. And, and I think since I've come in, I suppose KB has always been the one that's played probably in the biggest games. Uh, and it was nice to see her play last week. And I, I thought she looked fantastic. Mary Earps is playing really well as well. So ultimately, since I came in, what, what I've done is I, I've gone horses for courses where, where certain games suit the profile of certain goalkeepers. And I think that's worked really well. But I think at the moment, there is a position there where somebody's got to grab grab that number one jersey to play in a game like against Norway or like against Germany. Well, let's focus on this weekend's WSL fixtures briefly. Villa Chelsea, we know, is off due to that positive COVID test. Uh, there are no fixtures this Saturday then, so it's a bumper Sunday in the WSL. Arsenal versus Spurs, the North London derby is the biggie. No one mentioned Alex Morgan, please. We should bleep that out. <laughs> Everton play Brighton, Reading play Manchester City, West Ham uh, go up against Manchester United and Bristol entertain Birmingham. Chris, pick us a fixture. Which one are you looking forward to? Well, I'm not going to mention Arsenal Spurs and I'm not going to mention the player that we're not going to mention. (laughs) Um, As I said, I'm really enjoying watching Everton at the moment. I want to see if they can keep this run going. Brighton will be looking, obviously, Hope Power for a response to... So what happened against Arsenal? Um, can they go and get that kind of Man City type result um, that they got earlier in the season and and grind something out? 
I don't think so. I think Everton are going to win that again. And I think, yeah, that's the game in, in some ways I'm most looking forward to because I just want to follow Everton's progress throughout this campaign. And, and I just I feel already that we've, we've seen that the WSL is going to be more competitive than it's ever been before this season. I think I'm looking at the bottom of the table again. I keep doing this, but I'm just intrigued whether Birmingham can stay up this season. And they have got a great opportunity, haven't they, against Bristol City to get two wins Mm. in a row. What would that do for confidence um, if they could? I think this is must win for Bristol City. Now, knowing that Birmingham have three points on the board, they they have to win this. So I, I think that's got a lot riding on it, that match. Is it mean of me to say I'm giving West Ham one last chance? It isn't, it isn't <laughs> factually time. true, of course. But they come up against Manchester United. Look, we know who the favourites are in this game, but I, I just need to see something from West Ham. So I'm going to pin my hopes probably stupidly on them. Nothing against West Ham, by the way, but I I just want to see something from them. I want to see them turn up, actually. So West Ham versus United one I'll be looking at. That's all we've got time for. A big thank you to Chris and to Michael Cox and to Phil Neville, of course. Chris, give a plug for your women's football yearbook again and tell us where the proceeds go. Yeah, so it's only available direct from the publisher, legendspublishing.net. And yeah, I'll be giving away 100% of any royalties received to the, the NHS and to women's grassroots football. There's a great excuse there to pick up a copy. Quick shout out for what we're up to at the moment. Um, There's some great things on the website to look at in terms of women's football. Our regular WSL Five Things from Jessie Parker Humphreys. You'll always pick up extra bits of information on the weekend's games there. There's always some good good observations from Jessie. Um, Plus Martin Whiteley every week focuses on one big talking point on women's football in Europe. So if you want to know what the big headlines are from Spain or Germany or France, um, check out that one. They're up on the website website offsiderulepodcast.com we've also got rich laverty who's doing a women's football column from now on so um you can read all of his musings on the website too oh, um, the wisdom oh the wisdom um you can join us again next week where we'll be having more of our own wisdom on the women's game until next time bye-bye bye you've been listening to the offside rule wsl edition part of the athletic podcast network keep up to date with everything offside rule at offsiderulepodcast.com and by following at Offside Rule Pod on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Offside Rule WSL edition is a Money Knees Media production. Money Knees Media.